This is Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois. The podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. And now here's your host, Navy SEAL founder of Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, Rob Dubois. This is part two of my discussion with Pete Weichel. If you missed part one, please go back to last week and take a listen. A great example of that compromise of the journalists uh, is from uh, my 9-11 experience. So like I said earlier, I I watched 9-11 happen with SEALs, Arab SEALs in a certain country. And then a few weeks later, we got the order to do a hydro recon, just like you were talking about earlier, Pete, the the hydrographic reconnaissance. One of the first or only uh, hydro recons in decades, as far as I know of, to do the... uh, to the hydro recon on the Pakistani beach where we would uh, send the Marines over and yep. they bounce in and form Camp Rhino to do the GWAT, to start OEF. We did the hydro recon. I was the cartographer for that, took it back to our base in another part of the Middle East and did up the mapping and the charts and the plans and sent it back to D.C. and they got the Marines queued up to go and execute. When the Marines came back out and started the actual invasion a few weeks later, my boss was on the beach, and he said, Colonel, we'd love to send our little platoon with you. we got 10 guys. Uh, we've already kitted out for the winter weather. We're ready for, for your Afghanistan war. And the, and the commander of the Marines said, I'd love to have you, Lieutenant, but we can't take those 10 people in this invasion because all the extra jump seats are taken up by journalists. And that was our welcome to the new world of journalism embedded. And yep. like you say, it's they're looking. These are careerists. These are journalistic careerists looking to make a name for themselves. Yep. And what makes the name? The biggest splash. The biggest scandal. And they say, oh yeah, the 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 Americans are doing this, and it's yep. and they're doing it here. Just now, this week, I saw a story in the news about Wagner Group, the Russian version of Blackwater, yep. the mercenaries. Apparently, upwards of a hundred Wagner guys were just killed by the Ukrainians because an embedded thrill journalist, a guy that, you know, a guy with a phone, an iPhone, got in there, took photos of himself smiling with the Wagner guys. Yeah, we're in here doing this great hero shit. And next thing you know, there was a little street sign. And next thing you know, the, the Ukrainians were like, okay, I know that street sign. Okay, I know where their headquarters is. And boom, 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 HIMARS missiles come flowing in, and they wiped out a massive, massive contingent of uh, Wagner mercenaries. It, it was a good thing. They killed, they, they killed a bunch of evil people. The guys that are going to kill Ukrainian mommies and daddies. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's worked out well this time. It's a great example of how not to be a journalist. And speaking of mommies and daddies, this is one of the things I did not want to – did not want to to miss out on in our conversation. And and that's why we've made this two episodes because there's so much valuable, important meat to be discussed – you are the first and only guest on Beyond Your Limits that's ever been part of receiving the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. And this is something that we cannot not talk about. I know you've shared with me the scenario that led to that. The, the Lebanon work was a collective over, over saving lives. But you have a very specific story about saving lives. And I wonder if you'd be willing to share that. Yeah, so... I'll tell you about the Nobel Peace Prize and get back into that. So it was years later, I was at the center, and it was another guy who was in the mission with me, and he said, Pete, look, Time Magazine, we got the Nobel Peace Prize. I said, get out of here. You know, I didn't say that. It was like, get the fuck, you know, and he goes, no, look. (laughs) And it was 1988, and so the Nobel Committee who said they were never going to give the Nobel Peace Prize to military people, they decided that 
40 years of peacekeeping in Lebanon from 1948 to 1988 was indeed important. And a lot of people, it suffered and died and got hurt saving other people's lives and helping to bring peace in a very troubled area. And so they awarded the Nobel Peace Prize to us. So I share it with a bunch of people. Admiral Eric Olson was in that. He has it. There, there are a bunch of other SEALs that served there and a bunch of other Americans. You know, there are thousands Charlie of Sheen, for example. Yeah, there were thousands of guys that served in that, in that mission in South Lebanon and are all recipients of the Nobel Peace Prize. So we share that. And it's a great honor. And... And my UN Service Medal on the back says, in the service of peace. And then if you've ever gotten a humanitarian service medal, it says humanitarian service or something like that. So there's other medals we get for, for having to beat up bad guys, and those are good medals too. But sometimes it's nice to know that the, the end thing of what we're doing is going to bring about peace. So we can go back home and and uh, drink beer around the campfire and, and prepare for the next fight because you need some peace in between there. Well, well, knowing that we live in a tumultuous, violent world and probably war is not going away for the next hundred years or so because every time, especially in certain cultures um, and especially in you know these, these radical Muslim cultures, when you affect one generation it becomes generational. And so I gave a speech class 262. I was the honored speaker. And never to be politically correct, all the mothers and fathers there, I told them, uh, you have to think of this in terms of the when when they used to have the 50 and 100 years of war, this ain't going away too soon. And all the admirals are looking at each other and, you know, but I'm going to tell you the way it is. So, and that is, is an aside, every seal that came up that I put a trident on, I looked at him right in the eyes and I said, can you do something for the bullfrog? And they would go, yes, bullfrog. And I'd say, can you go forward and defeat evil for me and the country? And they said, I'll defeat evil. Every single one of them said that, so I'm proud of them. So let's, let's get back to the village. So it was about, oh, three or four days. I was, gonna, I was finishing up uh, a week in South Lebanon and... And I was going to take leave and go to go to England and meet a friend and go to London and, you know, take about 10 days off and, and enjoy that for a little while. And so the very the morning of the day I'm supposed to leave, we get this call from we were in teams. I was in Team Romeo. And when you're on a team, there's four men on a team and you had a Jeep and you did these patrols and you would respond to people's calls and, you know, you would investigate. Uh, murders, abductions. We had to count the dead. And when you uh, when you called in by someone, and you see uh, you go in a room, and here's this person lying on there, and and you've got to confirm how he was killed. And his father takes the sheet off of him, and you see his mortal wounds. And he, this little man, has a teary eye. And his son was born in the house and he watched his son get killed right in front of him. That affects you. And you you see the the super ugly side of war and and it is ugly. And you see the human side and you really feel for that person. So it was also part of the job. You had to count and confirm the dead. 
We were always getting shot at, and we were unarmed observers, you know, and you had to learn how to talk your way out of things. You had to learn, like, phrases and stuff in, like, 20 different languages just to get around the area of operations. So, anyway, one morning, I was getting ready to leave, so we went to Finbat, and we probably drank a little bit too much, and all of a sudden, we get this call, Team Romeo, Team Romeo, it's Foxtrot, we need your help immediately. So we get up, and I said, Joe start the car and everything. I'll go make the coffee. Cause as soon as we got up, we looked at each other, we're going to need some coffee, <laughs> you know? So I make the coffee. We take off running to, uh, to uh, French bat and, and we're meted by this. The two, those two guys are, are, are separated. We're met by Rich Sherwood, who is a Marine major who had three purple hearts from Vietnam and real grizzled guy, great guy. And, you know, he looks at me and he says, you know, I think she was alive. He was trying to save this woman that was shot. So it was the first day of the Israeli Iron Fist raids and the Israelis came into a bunch of villages. We're going to establish uh, authority and and people got killed and men got killed and women got killed and children got killed. And so we're told to go to this one village and observe and report. So we're on a hill and it's raining. It's cold. It's December. And when it rains in Lebanon, it rains sideways, I think. And we're on a hill and there's the three of us and I've got my hood on. And all of a sudden, my partner, Joe Casey, he's an Irish major commandant. I see him down there right in front of there's what we're looking at is a wall of 300 women. The men are in back of the women. There's this little corridor. It's less than 20 feet across, like 15 feet across in between these buildings. And some of these buildings, they're, they're like crude brick and everything. But in between them all were Phoenician ruins. So you see f- stuff built upon stuff from thousands of years ago. And, and they're burning tires. And up front, there there's six truckloads of Israeli soldiers. And, and on the trucks, they've got 50 calibers. And there is like four guys that were in a Jeep and they're talking to uh, two of the village, the Mukhtars. And then there's two French soldiers standing at port arms with their guns. Like, what were they going to do? And and so the Israelis wanted to break through and the women built this little stone wall. And and, and so here were the here were the women shouting and, and there were burning tires. And for some reason, kids were cutting up onions and throwing them and. It was just really, really nasty. And so I look at Rich and I say, hey, Rich, I got to get down there and, and, and back up my partner. Just as I get down there, here's my partner. You talk a guy with huge balls, right? He's finger punching this Israeli colonel and he's saying, now you listen here. You're a soldier and I'm a soldier and I'm not going to let you kill women and children here today in this village. And I thought, great, <laughs> you know, and, and you're almost thinking, OK, we're going to die today. And you don't think that, but it's somewhere way back in, in your head. And you're trying to think, OK, we got to solve this problem. And so so the Israeli soldier looks at both of us. He's a colonel and he says, I open fire in five minutes and spins around and takes off. I look at Joe, right? Joe looks at me. And I yell out, hey, colonel, I'm an American officer. Won't you come on back here? So he comes back and we start talking. And he says, I, I open fire. I have, I have my orders. I open fire in five minutes. I said, well, you're going to kill us. We're not moving. You're going to kill an American officer. And I said, there's a Marine major up there who's radioing everything in. The entire world knows what's going on right now. And by the way, he was in Vietnam. He's got three purple hearts. You're going to kill him too? You know, 
And he just looked at me. You know, you're going to kill these women, these 300 women behind me? Is that what you're going to do? You know, are you going to act like a Nazi? Is that what you are now? You know, and boy, he gave me a dirty look. So he spun around. This went on for a half hour in the rain. And, and the rain was just, it, it, it was coming down. It was nasty. And they were burning tires and it, you know, this, this is not good. So he came back and we negotiated for, oh, about a half hour. And he finally looked at me like he looked at us and said, okay, you guys win. And he took off and the truck started backing up. And just as that happened, now the brave men are throwing the women out of the way. They put the women up front to get shot. <laughs> a lot of really brave men. They thought the that last would dissuade them. Not going to dissuade the Israelis at that point. Um, and, 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 and in a way, I don't blame them. War is, it's a very nasty, busy business. It's very unpredictable. And there's a lot of friction, as you all know. And so all of a sudden, this kid gets un- gets underneath everything and starts running after this convoy that's now retreating. And I thought, great. You know, they're going to think he has a grenade something, and this is just the excuse to open fire. Yeah. So I run after this kid, and he, and he kind of trips. I think God made him trip. I grabbed, <laughs> grabbed, pulled him back by the scruff, you know, and I dragged him back and I put my arm around him and I looked at him and I said, you done good, kid. And I said, now get back over here, you know, and, and pushed him back into the, into the crowd. And, and they finally left. And, and, and then what happened, you, we go back and we debrief. And we lived in northern Israel. We lived in Naharia, which is a beautiful town. And you go through all this stuff. And I'm almost getting killed. And now I'm crossing the border. And there's, there's two guards at the border, and they're New York Jews. And we start talking, and I hear him. I go, you guys are from New York? And he, yeah, I says, I'm born in Harlem Hospital. I'm born in Manhattan. We're talking. And they said, you know, and they looked at me, and they said, God bless you. You, you have a good holiday. You have a good Christmas, you know, because at that point they knew I wasn't Jewish. And, I, and I'm thinking, great, you know, I was just, they were about to kill me. Now they're God blessing me. I go home. My neighbor comes out and says, Peter, you look so tired and you're all wet. Go take a shower and clean up, put some fresh clothes on and come on down for lunch. Now they're loving me, right? And then that night, the Swedes, at where we had a big meeting house for the whole mission, the Swedes were holding the Santa Lucia festival where they, they, they would take a pretty blonde girl and they would dress her up as Santa Lucia and she was like an angel and there were all the boys who were, you know, smaller boys all dressed as angels and, and they're singing these beautiful Swedish folk songs, you know, the, the, the Christmas folk songs and stuff like that and everybody's drinking hot mulled wine and, you know, so I'm, I'm now going from like the 7th century because we were in this town with all this old architecture and stuff and, and where the people's minds were in the 7th century. Mm-hmm. All their minds were in the 7th century. So little by little, you know, I'm coming back into the century. The next day I'm on a plane. I land in London. I go to my hotel. I walk across the street. I was going to go shopping in Selfridges, which is like the mother of all. It's like Herod. Well, Herod's is even better. But, I mean, they're two big stores. Ours don't compare with theirs. Selfridges was just amazing. So I'm... So I'm walking across the street, and all of a sudden I freeze. And I don't know I freeze. 
and I've stopped traffic. And, and one of the Bobbies had to come up and, and ask me if I was okay and escort me to the curb, right? And I looked at him and said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I said, I, I have jet lag and everything. He says, please be careful. And he says, always look to the left because their, you know, their traffic comes the other way. And I said, yes, sir. Thank you very much. I walk into Selfridges and it's a massive humanity. And you know, you walk in and, you know, the women are there, the perfume, the people are getting sprayed with perfume. And there's just this mass of this humanity. People are well-dressed. And, and I said, oh, my God. This is going to take another century to fix. And what had happened to me was I went through a time warp. I went from like the 7th century into the 20th century. And I realized, oh, my God. We're not solving these problems right away. This is going to be with us for a long time because now we have to take cultures and we have to drag these cultures. We have to get these cultures from the 7th century mindset. And now we're in the 21st century, so we got to take them. And a lot of them are back still in this. They, maybe they're in the 8th century now, okay? So now we're dragging them. To, they've, they've accelerated 100 years. We've got to bring them into the 21st century. And you want to know something? That's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen in 100 years. I'm sorry. To, and I'm the world's eternal optimist. My glass is always half full. Lately, it's been half empty, and I'm trying to get it to be half full. And I'm still an optimist, but I'm also a realist. And I understand history. And I understand culture. And this is going to hurt. And so, you know, it was for all those sorts of things that the Nobel Committee had to realize, they had to recognize the sacrifice everybody went through. And there were a lot of guys that died uh, helping those people, and that was their way of doing it. And so it's an honor to share that in the name of peace. Yeah, you know, it's like you said about protecting lives, protecting innocent lives. And you also talked about OIF, OEF, and how the frogmen, these young bucks during you know 2005 to to. 2020 were just kicking doors. They didn't do hydrocon. They didn't do a lot of no. Navy SEAL stuff. They just kicked doors and took down bad guys, as the SF guys did too. They went from foreign internal development to kicking doors. They did VSO, village stability operations, and some FID there. Yeah, but but a lot of a lot of our younger men don't know what it is. They don't know their heritage in the soft world, and are learning now. Some of our admirals and generals are saying, "Hey, go back to our roots and learn." Don't we need these skills? But it's not all about killing. It's not all about kicking butt. It's often about protecting women and children. And you mentioned uh, our mutual friend, T, the young officer who worked for you at Trident. And she's actually in my book, not by name, but she's uh, her, my story about her female literacy program is in Powerful Peace. Yep. So when, when listeners see that, they'll say that, you know, she was, uh, T was protected by Navy SEALs. She was a Navy officer herself, not a, not a SEAL. But one of the things that, that happened from Trident wasn't always about catching HVIs or, you know, high-value individuals or identifying guys to shoot, but rather how to help rebuild that society from the inside. Because as we can tear down an evil network or a wicked network, we can also build up a positive, virtuous network to help the society itself. And she was teaching women how to read in Arabic. Well, uh, well, you know, peace is is part of the continuum of of war. I mean, they're intertwined because as soon as you liberate something— even in World War II or any other place, as soon as you liberate a village, we now have a responsibility to try to bring them back to some sort of normalcy. 
you know, you, 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 and they show it in the movies, and, and this is absolutely true. In World War II, a soldier would take a break and give his chocolate to children or somebody mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. They would give him rations, you know, if people needed to be fed. And, you know, this goes back to General Grant with Civil War. At Appomattox, you know, when Lee surrendered, he, he looked at the condition of all the, the Confederate soldiers, and it's like, feed them. And, and even, you know, we're better on when, when, when we take prisoners, we have a responsibility. We have to be very firm with those prisoners. They have to be tried and everything, but they have to be treated as humanely as possible. I mean, the guys that were living down in Guantanamo, are you kidding me? They're getting three squares a day. They have workout places. They got TV. They got this. We treat our prisoners better than, than some of the poor people we have in this country. But peace is inherently... Peace and war are tied together, and as, and, and as soon as you win a battle, and even during part of the battle, troops will do things to save other people's lives, and, and they'll sacrifice their life to save somebody else and so that they can live a peaceful life. So it's all intertwined, and it's, and it's part of it. So anybody that goes to war, if they don't understand that the goal isn't just to win the war, it's to win the peace. And that's why we had the Marshall plan because Marshall was brilliant. Marshall was the guy, if there, if you had to pick one guy that was, that was the catalyst to winning World War II, it wasn't FDR, it was Marshall. Marshall's like one of the most brilliant minds that ever existed uh, in our country, strategic thinker. And so the way I look at it is, yeah, Patton gets the name and MacArthur and who do you think is directing most of this stuff? It's Marshall. So Marshall, read the book, The Generals. Marshall wins the war, and then he goes on to win the peace with mm -hmm. the Marshall Plan. So you're absolutely right. And your, your book is more ap apropos, powerful peace, because the reason we go to war is to bring about peace. It's not... Mm -hmm. We, we don't go there to totally destroy an enemy and salt the earth and destroy their culture. Look what we look at. Take a look at our two main enemies in World War II. Look at what happened to Germany with, with the economic miracle and look what happened in Japan. They're both economic powerhouses. Mm -hmm. We didn't destroy the culture. We helped make the culture better. We brought them peace and we had alliances and we keep the peace with them. And so the, the object of the exercise, when I, when I say prepare for total war, when called upon to fight, win, winning means we're really going to establish a peace later on. I don't say that, but you, your rules can only go so far. And right. It's not about devastation. It's about establishing security and stability. It is. And, and that's the other thing. You can't have peace. The Romans had a saying, if you want peace, prepare for war. Because there's always going to be a bad guy on the block that wants to steal your lunch money. Right. And he may be bigger than you, but you want to know something? He comes after you and you pull out Mr. Mossberg. He ain't stealing your lunch money. Mm -hmm. You know, or if you got five years of taekwondo or aikido or something like that and he starts pushing you around and all of a sudden he's on the ground looking up at you trying to figure <laughs> out how did i wind up on the ground and your foot's on my throat yeah so if you want peace you have to prepare for war you you always have to prepare for the worst 
because bad guys will pick on you and they'll take you over, they'll steal your lunch money, steal what you have, and it, we have a duty and responsibility to make sure that bad guys don't do that. And the especially for those that were responsible to watch over, I think, in my philosophy, you know, if I get my butt kicked by a bad guy, that's unfortunate. But if my wife or children or other people that are depending on me do, that's a, that's a intolerable next level. Yeah. a, A lot of guys died for their families, you know, and I'll go back to the constitution. Yeah. We, we also died to preserve the Constitution, which preserves our way of life. Without our Constitution, we don't have our way of life. We don't have this land. We don't have anything. Mm-hmm. So, and we also have to give the biggest shout out to God. Because if you look at the Constitution, and Newt Gingrich wrote a book, and it was all about how God was embedded in everything. And when, when we have a godless society, we start becoming an evil society, and then, and then that's where... That's where mayhem and destruction occur, and that's what Satan wants. And you know, we, and we have to be on guard, and we have to beat the shit out of Satan every time he 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 rears his ugly head. You, I don't want to, I don't want to end the call, uh, the conversation, but um, I want to make sure that we have a chance. You did touch there on your your rules, but we didn't yep. talk about it explicitly. Would you leave the oh, listeners me, with do, that? So we rules. have. Oh, let me do the rules real quick. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. So rule number one. And these, these were developed over a, over a whole career, you know, working for guys. So I remember when I was on the Peleliu, Captain Tom Scott had a policy, and he says, my policy is simple. It is people. And then when I got commissioned, I had a talk with Marcinko, and I said, in one sentence, give me some advice for, for a new ensign. He just looked at me and said, take care of your men. Hmm. So it's all about people. So my first rule was take care of your people. They're your most important assets. Families, villages, states, our nation is built up at people. So people are important. They come first. The second rule was never compromise your personal integrity. You are your integrity. You tell a lie and no one will really ever trust you again. They may forgive you and later on they may trust you, but boy, you're going to have to really work hard to build that trust up. And, and, um, and probably 90% of all the problems that we have when people screw up and do stupid things, it's an integrity problem. They have a case of the dumbass, you know, and it's an integrity problem. They break their integrity. So uh, that, that rule was important. Never compromise your personal integrity. And the third rule initially was prepare for total war. And the reason I wrote it like that was for two reasons. Number one, it was when we could have gone to nuclear war and war between the Russians, even if it wasn't nuclear, it was going to be like World War II. So it was going to be total war. Uh, so prepare for total war, not these little, and, and any war is kind of total. And the reason it is, the second part of that is total means you have to be willing to sacrifice. You have to be willing to die for what you believe in. You have to be willing to die for that constitution. You have to be willing First and foremost, the band of brothers, you know, they're going to die for each other first. That That's the first thing. You're not thinking about the Constitution. The Constitution is what makes you serve. That's the impetus for getting you there unless you get drafted. And then you still take an oath, and then most people don't know what the oath is. So most people, you know, they die for each other. They die to protect each other. So, so again, that goes back to people, and it goes back to integrity. If you put people first and you have integrity, 
and something bad happens and you go to protect everybody, that's that's preparing for total war. You you may get killed uh, or you may sacrifice yourself. Like a lot of guys do, they jump on a grenade. Well, they they weren't thinking about themselves. They had high integrity and they jumped on the grenade and they made the so total sacrifice. It was total for them and they saved everybody else. And then when this war started, I added a second sentence and the second sentence read, when called upon to fight and win. And I thought, we're Americans. We kick ass and take names. We win. We're the most competitive society on the face of the planet. We have the World Series. We have the Super Bowl. We have the Stanley Cup. We have the Winston Cup. You name the cups. We got more cups. We got more prizes. We have more sports. We keep creating new sports, new competitions, the chess competition. Uh, someone's always getting a trophy. So the object of the exercise is winning. And you want to know something? You may go through life and you may not, you may never win, but, but competition is relative. So if you're always striving to win, even if you don't win that big prize, you're still a winner because if you were competing against people that were not as competitive as you, you would be winning. It's just that your competition, now you're competing against the best there is or the best you can. And so if you lose against the best guy you can compete against, yeah, they won, but you're, you're not a loser. And, and I, I don't have it in me. Everybody ought to read that thing, The Man in the Arena by, by Roosevelt, uh, mm -hmm. President Roosevelt. Yeah, right up here in my yeah, everybody ought to read Man in the Arena because in the end he says, it's, you know, it's not about those poor, tired souls that won't compete. It's mm -hmm. about the man in the arena who, even if he loses, he loses valiantly and he loses with courage. And so he doesn't really lose, but, but he's the man in the arena. Or he, It could be for women, too. She's a woman in the arena. She's willing to get bloodied for her cause. So those people who compete at the higher levels, they're the people in the arena. And, and so it's, a, and then the other thing I, I, especially young kids, I tell them, you know, when you don't win that, that ought to be, that ought to be your reason to want to win, to mm -hmm. want to work harder, to focus harder so you can win. And, and even when you don't, you're the man in the arena. So always be a proud that you were the man or you were the woman in the arena. And, that, and that's what those three rules are about. And the reason I only had three is I read a book, by this one admiral, and he said, you know, you can only do things in threes. And I thought about it. Yeah, there's a father, son, and a Holy Spirit. And, and an equilateral triangle next to a circle is probably one of the strongest geometric figures. And there's three points to it. There's three sides. So, and the other thing is, most people can only remember three things. So I just mm -hmm. wanted you to remember pe people, integrity, and war. And, and the other thing is, if you ever go to the guys that are greatest at this, black ministers, they, when they, they'll say things in threes over and over again, all throughout their sermon. If you leave it, you can't leave, remember what the first sentence was, which he says three times, about 40 or 50 times during the, during the song, you're brain dead. You know, you're, you're not paying attention or you got your iPod or you got whatever on and you're just not paying attention. So things in threes seem to work out. Like there was, there was a lot of these great generals who had rules and they had 10 rules. I only remember one of Colin Powell's rules and it was the best one for a staff person. And it went something like this. Never attach your ego to your position because when your position fails, your ego is going to go with it. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing you got to realize is you're working for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff.
It's not your position. So take your ego out of your ass, forget about that, and realize you're writing for the man. Everybody is feeding the man. It is his position you're writing. It's not your position. And, and too often we put our egos in. And the other thing is when we put our egos too much into stuff, we start losing our integrity because it becomes all about us. Right. It's back to rule one. It's about people. It's not about us. And when I retired, part of my speech was I said, if I have accomplished anything in 39 plus years, and I have, it is only because I stood on the shoulders better men than me because I wanted to make sure that I gave credit to those World War II guys when I first came in the teams that some of them might not have been the most literate or the most articulate, but that's not what you learned from them. They gave you integrity. They gave you heart. They gave you soul. They gave you the will to win. They gave you, you got through training never to quit, but they gave you more of that. They added all that stuff into your bag. And so we all have to give thanks and credit to the people that came before us. And, you know, and you want the next generation. You want the next guy to be better than you. And if, and, and, and if you're on this ego trip and you just want to go down in history like Ramsey's, of Egypt, where, where he put his cartouche on everything, scratched everybody else's off. He wanted to be the only guy left in history. You know, that that's a pretty sad commentary on, 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 on his life. And eventually he lost because the Jews left Israel, didn't they? I mean, they left Egypt, didn't they? And, and they created their own nation. And so we have to give credit where credit is due. And it's to all the people that came before us in our business that made us who we are. And, and we want the next generation to be much better than us and to exceed our expectations and to exceed everything we've ever done and be, and be stronger and more successful and happier. Because if we don't think that, then we have our head up our ass. We don't give a shit about people. We don't have any integrity. And we don't give a shit about war. We don't give a shit about planning. We only give a shit about ourselves. And that's not why I wrote those rules. I wrote those rules because I wanted people to think about the greater good. And the greater good started with number one with the people. So that's a strong takeaway, a very strong lesson. We, do, we are looking about the law, taking the long view. And the best way to teach is by example. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been a fantastic double episode, our second in history. So uh, I can't thank you enough, Pete, for coming on, Captain Pete Weichel, for uh, sharing these ideas, and, and uh, Eric Bond for uh, making us think deeper on the ideas, too. And thank you, Eric. So thank you to you, kind listener, for sitting with us and, and hearing these things and applying them. Don't just listen. Hear and do Take, take the ideas and go back to your home, go back to your work. Whether you're military or not, we all serve in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Find a way to make it happen. Thank you again, Captain Pete and Eric, Coach Eric. Rob, it's an honor to spend some time with you and Eric. And anytime you need me, you know where I'm at. You just a text or email or a telephone call away. Right on. And guys out there in listening land, have a groovy day, and we will see you very soon, ideally next week, on the next Beyond Your Limits. Thanks for joining us on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois. 
the podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. For more information about Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, visit impactactual.com. And be sure to subscribe on Apple iTunes or wherever you like to listen so you'll never miss a show. We'll see you next time on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois.